Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben Kitchings, but you knew that. And this is the History Voyager. I'm here with Mal Foster, who is, I guess we could say, a bit of a world traveler after a fashion. Yeah, yeah kind of. Why don't you get going and tell everybody why I was so eager to talk to you? Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I mean, to a degree, I am. Um, I have done a little bit of traveling. First uh, major trip was back in 2015, and that kind of sows the seeds, or at least plants them, for, for my current situation. So 2015, uh, to cut a long story short, as an exercise of, of self-esteem and uh, challenging social anxiety and, and getting over a number of hurdles that I'd had in my life, I decided to do a coast-to-coast trip across the U.S. First time I'd been to the U.S. by myself, first time I'd been anywhere by myself, really, so I started off in New York, and the goal was to get to Los Angeles. Didn't quite make it. Ended up having to leave once I got to San Francisco because I kind of burnt out through money a little bit quicker than I'd expected or planned. Um, but inevitably, um, that is a big sort of catalyst to me emigrating from Northern England, where I'm originally from, to Central Texas, where I now reside. Okay, and um, wow, so (laughs) you've sort of seen, like, what's, first of all, what's Northern England like? No, well, I mean, it's very different in terms of typography to to some extent. Uh, One adjustment of many several that I've had to kind of make over the last two years, both micro and macro, but one particular one, there's been a little bit difficult to kind of get around is the pedestrianization of Northern England. You can pretty much in most places walk from one place to another. It'll take you a long time depending on where you're going, but it's it's more built in mind for, for, for pedestrians. Whereas here in central Texas, uh, pedestrians, I, I won't even say are an afterthought because that kind of feels like that would show some sort of concern or interest in pedestrians. So that was a big change but as a whole it's lovely you know it's a very different culture um we are some people might not think it at first but we are very friendly but we're just a bit more closed off and you kind of have to work for it a little bit more we're not so uh, openly giving with the friendliness you, you mean in central texas or in uh, northern england no in northern england so in northern england it's kind of like a great example would be so when my now wife came to visit Northern England, being from central Texas, where people are very sort of openly talkative to one another uh, and what have you, she would say hello to strangers in the city streets. And it'd be like, no, you, you don't do that here. You just kind of go about your business. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I mean, that paints us in a bad light in one sense, because it seems like we're very closed off. We're not. It's just, as I say, we're not as, uh, uh, as open. We're maybe a little bit more defensive i guess to some degree okay um what what if uh, spurred the move um to, a number to of Texas. things really to kind of go to to the main source you kind of have to dial it back 10 years ago this year actually yeah so at the time as i said before one of the things that prompted me to do my coast to coast travel experiment slash reward slash challenge 
was that I'd faced a number of obstacles and a number of those were mental health issues like anxiety and depression in particular. And 10 years ago, that is when it was at its height. And with that came a lot of insomnia. And so having tried a number of things to try and sort of ease the insomnia, I found myself on YouTube, as most people tend to kind of find their way if they're looking for something, will inevitably find their way either onto to Google or YouTube. And I came across this community, which now is known as the ASMR community. And it's a huge sort of subculture type thing that's really sort of blown up in the last five years. But back then, it was just known as the, the whispering community where people would make just strictly audio videos with still pictures with the sole intention of helping people that had uh, anxiety, depression, insomnia, to just kind of relax and go to sleep. So I found myself uh, being really benefited by this in a big way. And I also found somebody else who is is now my wife, who also was kind of in a similar position. And we started interacting there. I mean, okay. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, let's clean this up a little bit. Let's, right. Okay. You need to explain to my audience what I, I think I know what it is, but right. ASMR is, uh, it stands for something. Yeah. It, autonomous <sighs> sensory meridian response is what I think it is. And yeah. it's kind of, I don't want to say it's a full on science element of, I don't want to say phenomenon that makes it sound too grandiose and dramatic, but there's a science to it in terms of what are referred to often as tingles. So it's essentially like uh, quiet sounds played yeah. loudly, basically. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That sort of um, initiates like a physical response, um, yeah. as I say, tingles or kind of it, it, it's sort of like a multidimensional thing. Uh, one is the tingles. One is like the physical sensation being triggered by uh, a typical thing is something people experience is, is like a teacher reading a story at, at school or a hairdresser's appointment where it's kind of just like moments of quiet and, and like uh, intimacy to various degrees that kind of register. So small, quiet sounds that register pretty deeply. Right. And I got to ask, I mean, not to pry, but I, huh? I got to ask, you literally met your wife in the YouTube comments? Yeah. <laughs> Man, I mean. Yeah. More power to you. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a strange story that kind of gets a little bit easier the more you tell it and the more that time has gone by. But coming through here and going through customs and having to explain uh, why I'm here, who I'm seeing, and then when when it came to the point when we were engaged, and then just out of curiosity, border patrol people would occasionally ask, "Oh, so how did you guys meet?" And they'd be like, "Oh, okay." Well, how much time do you have? Because I don't want to hold the line up. And then you'd get some uh, some strange sort of. Some people would be like, "Oh yeah, that's that's really cool." And then some people would be like, "Okay, and you clear, go through and enjoy yourself." <laughs> well, I mean, okay, my my thought is okay. That's my actual thought when you said that is <laughs> like, that's really beautiful. And then I'm like, that's not the experience I've had on YouTube comments at no. all. I mean, <laughs> no, it can be a savage place for sure. Yeah, trust me. I've seen that side. I have seen that side. I mean, I don't know how many of my listeners know what an edgelord is, but that's who I see. <laughs> that's what I see on YouTube comments is like these people. And the scary thing is like I, I watch a lot of music videos mm -hmm. and you scroll down and it's just like, oh, my God, people. 
just shut up and watch the video. Don't. Yeah, I think <laughs> with that, that's interesting because obviously music video is, is you know, music as a whole is, is part of art and the subjective nature of art is always going to cause like sort of fissures and split opinions on stuff. So yeah, yeah. stuff like that is always going to kind of have a lot of sort of conflicting opinions and, and different ideas. Yeah. But with the community that we were in, it was all basically, I mean, it's it's changed a lot now. And you do get a bit more of the dark side of the comment section, as it were. But back then, its main focus was just on, on helping people. So you would find just like-minded people that were already having a bit of a, an issue with something in some department that were, were creating I, things with the hope of, of easing people's discomfort. Yeah, I had no idea that, ASMR was a a tool for mental health uh, to help you with your mental health. Um, I don't know how it, much it is now because honestly, I have kind of been out of that whole loop for a long time. But yeah, its its roots were definitely in that yeah, area. Yeah. All right. Um. So, Northern England is friendlier than Central Texas. Is well, what you're saying? No, not necessarily. Well, if. Um, not necessarily. It's just different ways of expressing. See, I I feel like my experience being here for two and a half years, you will find a lot, and I do mean genuinely a lot of friendly people in Central Texas, but you have to sometimes weed through degrees of authenticity. Some people are very sincerely Sorry. friendly and kind, and then some people it feels like, okay, I'm not buying this at all. I, I don't know if you're projecting something about yourself or this is just a defense mechanism or this is just part of your personality, but I don't fully buy that you are as nice as you are putting that out. Whereas yeah. in Northern England, when I, this is what I mean, you kind of have to work for it a little bit. We're not kind of just going to be like, oh, hey, how are you doing? Have a nice day. Hope you're doing well. Right off the top of the bat. You know, will be perfectly um, amicable, amicable and pleasant. But to, to kind of get more of that niceness, you kind of have to put in a, a little bit of work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, also like tech to me, like Texas is. There's a dividing line in Texas, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a geographical dividing line per se. It's a cultural line. Yeah, Big it's time. like you have the South, like the Southeast and the West meet in Texas. I don't know exactly where, <laughs> but it, but it happens. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, I had a guest that said, uh, like I live in the American South and I had a guest that said, um, in the South, they'll be really, really friendly to your face, mm -hmm. just as as a default. And then as soon as you leave, they'll be like totally savage. <laughs> See, I've I've had that that thought pattern occur a number of times. Yeah, where I, I thought, yeah, okay, now you're just going to be talking shit about me, <laughs> right? But then he said, like, up in Philly, he says, up in Philly, where I'm from, like, I had a flat tire with a I had like a, a bad flat with a baby. I had my, my baby. I was a new dad. I had my baby in the car with me and these people that I never knew that I didn't, haven't seen before or since stopped 
and put a spare tire on my car. Mm. And the entire time they were grumbling under their breath about how I was an idiot for not coming out of the house with a right. stuff for a baby, blah, blah. But there they were. Just, yeah. <laughs> you know. Just doing it anyway. Helping. I mean, Even if it's begrudgingly, they're still doing it. And he laughed at it the whole time. But yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah. I think there's there's definitely I, I mean at the core of it there is there is a helpful nature but it's just it's different ways of manifesting. I find for me because it, it kind of lines up a little bit more um there's there's more sort of connection and association with that with people from from like the north of America. So like I, I you, don't get me wrong New York can be really rough in in terms of some people's behavior it can be like very abrasive and very cold and cut off. But at the same time, if you kind of, in a similar way to Northern England, people like in, from my experience going across the country, people in the North, yeah, they're not that immediately accessible in terms of, of friendliness and what have you, but you, they're still there. You kind of just have to sort of chip away at a bit of a veneer sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if part of it, part of it is like for decades, not so much now, but like for decades, New York was a huge, huge city, but it was like a, a patchwork of small towns, yeah. you know, small like block to block situations that just made up a whole city. And I wonder if that has a lot to do with it. It wouldn't surprise me, you know, because that's know, a very yeah. that's a very different makeup to, to other parts of the and country. To the rest of America. Yeah. Right, right. Um, Yeah. So. You said you had some observations about America. Yeah, I mean, just, just uh, it's varied. So my whole experience, as I say, I've been here about two and a half years now, and and in that point, there's been a lot of change and a lot of adaptation. And the way that I would put it, the way that I would sort of compartmentalize sort of my observations and the, the sort of adaptations that I've kind of gone through, is the first year was very much more on the micro and personal level. So, you know, initially, like anyone that emigrates somewhere, whether it's within country or to another country, are going to kind of go through a, a range of motion of adaptation to missing uh, friends, family, obviously loved ones, first and foremost, places that they recognize, as I said, pedestrianization, being able to get around. Um, and then little things like that, things that aren't in your life anymore and then getting used to things that are. And then the second year is kind of where you, it, the bubble kind of expanded a little bit and you're seeing more because obviously we went through and still going through COVID this year and less. And then obviously we had what can only really be described as probably the most notorious presidential election run for some time. Um, and you kind of get to see more of society kind of opening up because there are things affecting it. So it kind of, it throws different adaptations and observations towards you. Yeah, like, um, I kind of think, I mean, so I've talked to people all over the place. I don't know how much of my podcast you've actually heard. I've listened to a little bit. Yeah. I've talked to people all over the country, all over the world, really, about how they're doing with COVID. Mm -hmm. And the thing that that I would not have been aware of 
the thing that I would not have been aware of had I not literally been sitting here talking to I don't know how many people at this point about about their situation, about their lives, is there's a whole lot of people, a whole lot, that are going, okay, what is our country? What What is this? Mm. Like, why? Why do we do that? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, you know, like, uh, I, there was somebody who said to me, um, he, he told me this story about how he realized he had to buy his kid a computer, this really small kid a computer. And he was like, wow. And I think a lot of people are basically trying to live their life digitally. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't, some of them are succeeding at that to some level or success adjacent. And some of them are not. And that's not, I'm not slighting them. I'm just saying it's hard for some people. How do you mean um, when you say trying to live their life digitally? Cause that's an interesting phrase that you could kind of like take in different directions. Well, like you have to, okay. Like I, I had, had a guy um, who said he had to educate children. Right. Um, over a computer Mm -hmm. and his town is kind of a resort town and it's not the the bandwidth is not such that you can have all these kids on these on these computers at the same time Mm -hmm. trying to get their schooling in Right. right or like he noticed the kids aren't socializing in person yeah yeah and he was kind of gaming that out like down through the years, he was like, "Wow, this is going to be crazy." <laughs> like oh yeah. Through... The, the, yeah, the the knock-on effect of these things, yeah, that in particular, yeah, um, the the sort of socialization of school kids. Obviously, schools and teachers and and education boards have had to adapt, as everybody has, and that was sort of the only go-to. But yeah, that's an interesting break, yeah. especially for kids that are of a very formative age that have kind of lived through. Like a, a good chunk of their yeah. school time completely distant from their peers and, and learning, as you say, digitally. And some kids may not have even had that because from economic standpoints, some kids just may not have been able to afford the the equipment or internet access, you know. Or they might not have been able to afford... It's one thing to afford internet access at all. It's another yeah. thing... I mean... Yeah, as you were saying, bandwidth, like high high speed internet to be able to deal with right. what they're receiving, yeah. Right. And I mean, I had one guest who I don't remember who it was, but they had this whole story where they were like, My kid is using my phone to do to do their schooling, and I don't know that I like that for a whole lot of reasons. I don't know that I want my child to be using my phone to be doing their schooling. Mm-hmm. And um I mean, yeah. So this is, here's a thought that I just had. How has your wife seen, you're married, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. How is your wife, um, the difference between, like she looks at you versus say the people you're around. Like how does she think of a Northern English person versus say (laughs) a Central Texan? 
Um, she, for the most part, um, my wife is a very empathetic person, and it's it's hard for her to be disagreeable. To like, she sees uh, like one one of the many good qualities. I'll just say this now to save my neck before I say just one of the qualities. One of the many good qualities she has is she does has a tendency to see like the best in people, even if it's trying at times. Um, but she, no, she she definitely sees that the cultural differences. Um, but I don't think she has quite the sample size that I do. Obviously, I have a larger sample size for the difference because I've spent 30-something years in Northern England and then two and a half years over here. She spent kind of at, at best about six to eight weeks in Northern England. She's she's interacted with a lot of friends and stuff, especially, you know, to kind of tie into what we're just saying, like digitally connecting with people during the last year. Um, and she's got to spend a lot of time with people from uh, from from back at home in Northern England. But yeah, she she's receptive of it. She she understands it. But again, I don't think she's quite had the, yeah. the time of immersion in it to to kind of really fully kind of have a, a strong comparison. Yeah. Now you say you've only been in the country two and a half years but yeah. you you've traveled through this country for how long i well my initial travel um was for about six weeks uh-huh. um back in 2015 so it was a lot in a short amount of time which is a good way to do it but also not the best because you're kind of limiting yourself to trying to pack in so much of a place into a few days at a time what okay? Let me ask you this, Mal. Mm-hmm. What what's the uh, if what's your take on American geography? Like your just the size of the country. It's see that's that's been a huge thing to get used to as well. So last year, or not last year, the year before, just after we got married for like a, a road trip honeymoon thing we did, we went through um, like the Texas Panhandle and we went up into to Colorado and stuff and we went to different places. So that was really kind of eye-opening because in terms of geography, typography, um, not typography, no. <laughs> well, geog- we'll see. Yeah. Uh, typography is typing. So. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm just saying. I've just pulled myself. I was like, that's got nothing to do with it. Um, Are you talking about like... Um, like landscape. Yeah, such. no. I'm and the word has completely to... evaded me now. Oh, basically, um, just like the landscape. typographical type. Yeah, they uh, topographical. Topographical maps. So That's top, it. top. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was close, but yet so far, um, yeah, that was a real sort of eye-opening thing for me because it was getting to see things that weren't city-based, that weren't, um, that, that just had a different sort of lilt to them. You know, a different sort of uh, sort of makeup in terms of the the topographical conditions. So yeah, it's. The size thing is is like really kind of overwhelming at first, and even now, as I say, when I go to new places, especially places that are a lot further spread out, and you're having to to travel by by highway, and you and you get to see just the expanse of it. It's amazing and it's beautiful. There are some absolutely stunning parts of this country, but the the size was a little bit overwhelming because I mean the state of Texas is probably bigger than the the UK as a whole 
or thereabouts. Well, the state of Texas, just just to lend some scale, uh, the state of Texas, I believe, is the size of South Africa. Wow. That so is... Just to lend some scale. Yeah. There. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, there these there were these. Uh, I remember there was a hurricane that hit Houston a while back, and they said like, imagine a hurricane hitting everything from New York to Boston at mm. the same time. Whoa. That's so that's the scale of yeah. the just so when you say Texas is bigger than the UK, yes it is. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's you know the UK is the size of uh Alabama and Georgia combined. Hmm. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's and it's it makes for interesting realizations when you plot out for instance, if you're going on a road trip and my wife's like, oh, it'll take us X amount of hours. And, and I'm just like, yeah, you could go from the top of the country to the bottom and then probably back again and still not quite have reached where we're going to. So that was quite an adjustment. <laughs> every European that I've ever met, you know, every person from Europe that I've ever met, if they ever traveled in America at all, and I mean literally at all, mm-hmm. right? Even just out of the city into a distant suburb, right? They're just amazed at the scale. They're just literally amazed at the yeah. scale. Um, yeah. That's, for me, I mean, even if you just kind of zoom in, not so much just like from, from within state, but just within the, the region where I'm at, and kind of going back to what I was saying about an adaptation to the pedestrianization and stuff, that was something that was really kind of a little bit overwhelming at first and not being able to, to drive at first was, was kind of a, a real daunting challenge because it's like, well, my sample size of what I can do, what I can see, what I can experience while I'm here, whilst my wife is at work is really kind of limited because you know, public transport isn't as as free and open and as readily accessible here as it is in Northern England. That's another change. So it was like bipedal travel for most places. And with it being so expensive, as I say, my sort of hemisphere, my sort of sample size was was much smaller. And that was, that are, was pretty are, difficult. Yeah. So are you okay? So you're central Texas. So that's mm-hmm. like Austin. Yeah, I'm about two hours away from Austin, yeah. Wow, so you're not even in a city. You're like, wow. Huh. Are you in a city? I'm just curious. Um, Yes, technically I'm in a city, yeah. Okay. So... But even so, I mean, like, even with it being a city infrastructure, um, you know, without transportation and what have you, it's uh, the, the, this large world I'm now in, is kind of small and huge at the same time, if that makes any sense. It makes total sense. It makes all the sense in the world, okay. actually. <laughs> um, what about... Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Um, have you noticed any differences in the infrastructure between the US and the UK? Just that you've seen. Um... Mm, yes and no. There, there's there's definite parallels in terms of um, like global chains and what have you, and recognizable corporations and, and stuff like that. In terms of infrastructure, from a more sort of localized standpoint, yeah, it's 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 different. Um, 
from where I'm from, there's there's a lot of residential housing. Like as I said, it's pedestrianised, and so a lot of that is linked by residential housing. Um, over here, it seems like residential housing is kind of over in little pockets, and those little pockets are kind of adjoined by connecting roads. It seems like everything's sort of compartmentalised, and in little sections. Whereas in in Northern England, everything is kind of connected one way or another. In in a, in a smaller again, it kind of goes down to to size, but in in a sort of smaller, more accessible way. Yeah, I'd be curious. I mean, I'm I'm familiar a little bit with the zoning regulations in my town, mm. my city. I'd be curious to know what the zoning regulations where you are actually are. Mm. Because that was set up initially on purpose, yeah. was to seg- was to separate out um, residential from commercial from from this and from that, and in the last I don't know uh, fifteen years or so, they've tried to bring the residential and the commercial more together, but only in certain segments, and yeah. that ends up being only certain kinds of commercial and certain kinds of residential, and right? It's you know, it's it, like it's a difficult compromise to get right and balance well. I think it can I think, be. I think the deal is like, like this country had to invent itself. Mm-hmm. You know where where England or I guess the UK just kind of came out of the mist of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, right, and so, it's kind of just been naturally evolving as it's gone along. Yeah, whereas right. you guys have kind of had to be like, okay, blank slate, what are we doing? And then, oh, this had to happen, or oh, that had to happen, or oh, you know, blah blah blah. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> and also, I think you had, well, you had generational goals, like you this generation had this goal and that generation had that goal and, and so on and so forth. I mean, and like you, it's like anything else. It's like you, you solve one problem, but you create all these other problems. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, what about, um, so COVID, how was your, how was your COVID experience? (laughs) Is it still going on? Um, it, well, yeah and no. I mean, I'm fully vaccinated now, which is is great, and that allows a lot more um, leeway. It, it kind of opens things up a lot more, and what have you. But initially, I it's funny because the first year of moving here, I joked with people that it was kind of my training for isolation and lockdown. Because as I said, it's not like I could get to a lot of places um, bipedally. Right. Uh, so my world, as I said, although much more expansive in landscape, was kind of smaller because of, of what I could do, where I could go. So, yeah, my first yeah. year here was kind of like a drill. <laughs> it was kind of like I didn't know what was coming, but it was kind of like this is good practice that I can draw upon. Um, so, yeah, on, on first hand, when everybody was freaking out and just swiping as much toilet paper as possible and just, you know, <laughs> just losing their collective marbles over who knows what's happening. 
it was it was a bit easier for me, I guess, because it's kind of like, oh, okay, so we've we've kind of had some sort of experience of limitations and certain strict parameters being put in place. So this is yeah. is a little bit easier for me. But at the same time, I'd gone through a, a year of having to adapt and make changes and try and kind of create a base, try and create some kind of roots, like independent roots for myself of who I am going to be here and what I'm going to do and what have you. So I'd had a year yeah. of kind of getting that off the ground, going through paperwork to be approved so I could get uh, a working um, a license to work and what have you. And uh, I found myself working at a local Starbucks and then COVID hit and oh, yeah. I, and it was like immediately I just <laughs> felt really, really uncomfortable because of how much public face-to-face there was and, and just like the high volume of people that just didn't seem to be really taking it very seriously. And because my wife was immunocompromised, it was like, okay, so I've gone through this waiting, holding pattern, got a job. Now I'm just yeah. like, ah, now I have to leave this job. <laughs> so well, it kind of kicked me back to square one. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you mm-hmm. specifically was it strikes me talking to Europeans and also Australians and, you know, mm-hmm. that um, they have a fundamentally different way of, of looking at the world than a whole lot of average Americans. I think that's a fair statement, yeah. And, I mean, like, you could have a psychologist in Australia and a psychologist in wherever, like wherever in America, and they could, theoretically, they could be the same education, they could have sort of the same analogous kind of lives. Mm -hmm. But that psychologist in America has a totally like, you know, and more, much more independent minded take on things. Right. Right. Much, much more of a, the government is never going to help me. I'm on my own than say your average Australian Mm -hmm. or your, (laughs) or your average European. And I want to I want to get your take on that. Um. Yeah. I I think there's definitely a fair statement to be said that it's it is very different views. Um. As as a whole, well, sort of worldwide perspective. Yeah. And I, I think that does honestly find itself steeped in in history, and and the sort of formative stages that have kind of gotten everyone to this point in time. Is you know like anybody that has had a different experience from somebody else, you're going to have a different perspective, and I think that works collectively to a degree, uh, in in what you're saying. Um, yeah, in terms of, um, in terms of mistrusting, say, government or, or official bodies, uh, th- there is plenty of that in Europe. You know, there's plenty. Of, I suppose it all depends on what side of the political fence you lie on. Um, in Britain, if you are a conservative, then you don't really have as much of that, I don't think. Whereas the other side of that fence, which is um, predominantly a, a group called the Labour Party, do have more of, I feel like, a mistrust because that comes from a more working class background. Uh, well, maybe not so much now, but in its roots, 
that side of, of the political yeah. two-party system was based in in working class roots and so it kind of felt like there was a bit of an upheaval uh, or like a, an uphill battle in some degrees uh, yeah. like some people were kind of born not into um not so much adversity that maybe is making it a little bit more dramatic but a bit of a disadvantage in comparison to certain uh, people more on a conservative side because they were more typically linked to families of affluence and, and sort of corporate and sort of advancement, yeah. if that makes any sense. It's been a while since I've studied my British history. Um, been a while since I did that. But as memory serves, the Labour Party, or at least the modern Labour Party, right? Mm-hmm. Um came i guess i'm not talking about the labor party from tony blair i'm talking about before tony blair right Mm -hmm. uh that kind of came from northern england did it not so a a part of it yes like we've always kind of had an impression on on the sort of political landscape in that regards um you know, uh, a big part of that kind of filtered through the through the eighties and the Thatcher era when mm. you had um, minor strikes and you kind of you you saw a lot more of a class divide. I mean, you still see it now, and that's one observation that I do have that is very different between the US and and the UK is that there is a class system in both countries. But I think the UK is a lot more conscious and willing to talk about it um, than than the US is. Yeah. The US doesn't really talk about the class system at all. No. Um, yeah, right. Um, okay. Um, and I think in the... In, I think they should, though, and I, I genuinely do think they should because I think that, I mean, it's not the root cause of all problems, but it's definitely part of, of some of the problems the country is facing is based in classism, you know? Well, right. And I think a lot of, I think, I think the problem we have now is that we're not, being honest with ourselves as a culture Mm -hmm. in terms of like what what is actually going on right like what and i don't just mean politically i mean or even so i mean like okay there are just certain things that used to happen that cannot happen anymore and we still think that that goes on right we still think that um you can we have an education system that pretends that there's going to be a factory for this person to go to mm-hmm. right or that um like you'd be amazed all the all the coding jobs i can find right and yet there's not nearly enough people educated for that mm-hmm. or <laughs> you know things like that um what about now here's something that I've noticed talking to people. I live in a state that was one of the 13 original states. Mm-hmm. But what I've noticed is the further west you go in this country, the more recent these people are. 
But see, with you being in Texas, you might actually have a lot of uh, Hispanic folks mm-hmm. that yeah. were actually there for longer than a lot of the white people. Yeah. Going all the way back. Yeah. But see, then I think about Northern England and, and you know, you could have people there from before the Romans. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> more, more than likely we do. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, do you notice that tension as well? Like the, like you could have people that are just have always been in Manchester, like going all the way back versus. Um, it, it depends. Um, you know, like Manchester is a really good example because Manchester is a very multicultural city. It's a big city and there's, there's a lot of different um, communities and, and some of them, uh, have been established within the last couple of decades in particular like there's there's been more eastern european communities established not just in manchester but across britain um but then there have also been you know there's obviously been eastern european uh, residents in in the uk for god knows how long um but yeah it, it it i think it's interesting and we do live in a very interesting time because on one hand in in that regard in terms of of immigration and in terms of mixed communities um and i think this kind of applies to both the uk and the us we we are in one sense moving a lot further forward in terms of acceptance and actually creating a sort of patchwork community of understanding of balancing different ideas views values beliefs traditions etc but i feel like we are also seeing more opposition and friction to that it's kind of like the the further one end of the seesaw kind of moves then there's there's more retraction pulling it back so yeah it's it's an interesting sort of you mean both in the uk or yeah yeah absolutely um because unfortunately and it doesn't just span to the uk it's across europe there's been a, a surge of sort of nationalism in the last number of years uh, I mean, it's always it's always been there, like it's always been here, but it just feels like obviously there's been a number of holes opened up for people to to come out of, you know. Um, yeah. But it's as a whole, you know, I, and I, I don't really want to generalize, but as as a whole, I think there is a great deal of acceptance for for people and, and from different communities, different areas, different countries that have either been there as I say, within the last couple of decades, I've been there for God knows how long. But at the same time, yeah, you're kind of getting strong opposition from it, especially in the last year. The last year has been a really interesting magnifying glass on both sides of the Atlantic for tolerance and intolerance alike. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think the internet, I mean, I think Twitter has been an amazing educational tool. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you choose to use it for that. Right. You know, it's been an amazing educational tool. Um, Well, social media as a whole, and I spoke to someone recently for an episode of my show who's who's got a a background whose profession is in um, psychology, particularly within online communities and social media. And they described it to me in a way that was really kind of clear and definitive and made a lot of sense. And that is like the internet and social media as a whole is essentially a tool. 
and how you use that tool is what you make with it. So it could be a hammer, for instance, and with that hammer, if you use it with the, the good intention that you, you want to, you can build something lasting, something genuine and significant. Or if you go into it with bad intentions, you can just destroy something. You can smash something up, yeah. yeah. Like, um, I don't know, like, I've just... I mean, I've met some remarkable people on Twitter, like, mm -hmm. and I use that term correctly because, you know, somebody I've talked to these people off Twitter, you know, in the DMs or whatever. Like, I feel like I've gotten to know quite a few remarkable people um, from Twitter specifically. Mm -hmm. um, but you say you have a podcast, and I do. Yeah. You know, I want to keep talking about your yeah, sure. I mean, you take observations of America, <laughs> but hey, let's talk about your what do you what do you learn from your podcast? So I mean, it's a good so this is a good thing for me in in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, you kind of touched upon how my pandemic's been. This has kind of been something that's really sort of saved me from unraveling a little bit. Is doing this podcast I do called Dying Doubt, and it saved me from unraveling because, as I said, I I had to leave my job. I came back and I was at home again, and as I said previously, had a year of that. But now it's, it feels different because it feels like I was beginning to build a base for myself. I was beginning to kind of, the, the very early stages of putting roots down, as it were, and then that was taken away from me. And I don't want to get it confused. Like I'm in a, in a very privileged position in comparison to other people. Um, you know, I, I haven't had to have some of the same worries that other people have had. But in terms of establishing who I am and getting used to, a lot of changes at once it was it was pretty pretty rough at one point so i decided to do this and that in itself has as i say stopped me from unraveling a little bit but it's also helped me kind of get a better understanding of of people um here because most of the people i've spoken to have been us residents or citizens i've have spoken to a few people from back home and had them on in the early stages but I've managed to speak to a lot of different people that have uh, either lived here all their life or lived here for most of it. And so just talking about different topics and different subjects and, and seeing it through different sort of perspectives and, and lenses and prisms has been really interesting. Um, yeah, and, and just covering lots of different topics. One in particular that was really, really interesting was I spoke to a former QAnon follower and, you know, like a lot of people, you hear that phrase and, and I did too. And you kind of have like a gut reaction based on what exactly you kind of seen from QAnon. And you just, a lot of people just will slap on the instant assumption, oh, they're a crazy racist. But I wanted to speak to this person because they seemed to be, they'd come out of it and they were trying to help other people that were having uh, problems sort of in terms of their personal life based on it, in terms of people making those same assumptions and ruining relationships or relationships becoming ruined by their sudden change in, in sort of mental alignment or political alignment, however you want to put it. Um, so that was a really eye-opening discussion to see somebody that went from a avid Bernie Sanders supporter to an avid QAnon follower and seeing their sort of trajectory and looking at their view of the last year 
you know. Um, so yeah, doing the show has really kind of allowed me to look through other people's perspectives yeah. and kind of get a good idea of, of a wider spectrum of what's going on and what people are deal- dealing with and doing. You know, the thing I got to say, like every QAnon supporter that I've interacted with, that I personally have interacted with, and I don't want to use the word supporter. What I want to say is, or believer, but everybody that I have interacted with that is more fluent in in the QAnon system than I am Mm -hmm. uh, is a very intelligent person. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm not saying that condescendingly. I'm really not, Mm -hmm. because they are. You know, I think there's this thing in brains where people want things to make sense. Absolutely. And, you know, from what I understand, if you just take the blush look, kind of like the 10,000 foot look at QAnon, it makes things make sense to a certain degree. Mm. As long as you believe certain other things, it makes the world make sense. Because I got to tell you, I mean... This world doesn't make sense. <laughs> no, it doesn't. There's nothing about this world that makes sense to me. It doesn't. Well, I mean, if you look at you look at the fact that we're here having this conversation, you look at the unquantifiable odds that either one of us would even be here in the first place, let alone lining up to have this conversation. None of that makes sense. None of that should happen theoretically by the numbers, but it does, and, well, and like, it has. You know, ten years ago, this wouldn't have even been possible, <laughs> right? I mean. Right. And and then you think about, well, it's like I, I was talking to somebody and he was talking about how crazy QAnon was and yada, yada, yada. And I said, well, OK, today I had a conversation with a man in Mexico over the computer. Mm-hmm. Then I got on my phone and ordered groceries. Then, <laughs> you know, yeah. And I'm doing this. Because the media I believe in tells me there's a virus out there that could kill me. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> right, yeah, when you break so, it down. When you break it down, none of this makes any sense. No, it, it doesn't. Life doesn't. Life in itself is a very absurd, abstract concept. And that's why, you know, there are obviously certain things and elements that we need to take seriously. But I, I just, a part of me doesn't take life too seriously because of how ludicrous and and abstract and just ridiculous it is i think one thing that really is a universal parallel no matter where you're from no matter what your political alignment is no matter what you believe no matter what you don't believe is that we are all consciously or subconsciously governed by the fear of the unknown because as much as we like to to think we know what's happening what's going on we don't and we never will and it's for me, one thing I've learned, uh, especially talking to to the, the young lady that was uh, in QAnon, is that we're all trying to navigate our own ship to reach a sense of some understanding. And it might not make any sense to, to person A, but if person B can navigate their way to, to finding some sense of understanding, that's what they're going to do. Right. A thousand percent, man. A thousand percent. So, I guess, um, 
So what have you learned about society, human society as a whole, just from talking to folks? Oh, oh, that's a good okay, question. Let me rephrase that. Okay. Before you started your podcast, right? what have you learned now? What are things you think now that you wouldn't have thought before you started your podcast? Um, so as part of just who I am, part of like my inbuilt nature that I've just kind of gotten used to uh, as, as being a part of who I am is I am kind of skeptical. I am a little bit cynical and maybe that kind of stems from sort of either just a personal uh, part of my infrastructure or maybe that is a cultural thing from Britain. I don't know. But I've always been a little bit skeptical, a little bit cynical about things. Uh, but I feel like what I've learned the, over the last year of going through this, going through the last two and a half years, really, since coming here and adapting to all the changes be mentioned before and doing the show in particular is to be more curious and to be more open to just hearing things, even if you don't necessarily believe in them or if you don't align with them or you don't have any sort of resonance or connection with them. There is an importance and there is value and there is reward in listening and not just talking from your perspective, but just kind of taking things in from a variety of angles. And as I say, you know, there, there are things I've encountered doing the show I just I don't believe in so I, I've, I've looked at astrology I've looked at soul reading and these are things I just cannot from a pragmatic standpoint grasp onto and be like yeah definitely but at the same time nope. I see what it brings to other people as I said it's them yeah. directing their ship towards a point of some sense of knowing or feeling like they have a grasp of, of what's happening and it works for them and so yeah I think if anything I've learned from from all of this is that it's just being more open and being receptive is is incredibly important and a very undervalued aspect that I undervalued for a long time, but I'm now really seeing the true sort of reward and benefit from. Yeah, I think I've learned, I guess, how to, I don't want to say objectify like a bad thing, mm -hmm. but I think I've learned how to, objectify belief systems right like yeah okay i, I get it i mean I, you know i get why somebody would would think that or i get you know like especially during um before the shape of covid became apparent like back when people thought i don't know this was the warm-up to the black death or something right Right, like I, I would talk to people up north, you know, mm -hmm. and there was fear on the other end of that internet connection, phone line, whatever. I mean, real abject fear. Um, and I heard some crazy, I mean, not crazy in terms of like that's not believable, mm -hmm. but crazy in terms of like, oh my god, that those poor people, right. like. Oh lordy, <laughs> like um, and I don't want to call anything out specifically right now, but but also I talked to a, I have a friend of mine, mm 
who I've had on my show several times at this point. And he actually brought up something that the more I think about it, he was probably right. And that was what I told you earlier was that there's a whole lot of people in this country that just do not believe that the government is going to help them. Mm-hmm. They oh, just yeah. don't believe that. Yeah. And so, you know, they got to, they got to go about their life as best they can. And I mean, you know, and um, I don't know. They're, you know, I mean that's understandable to to a degree, and it's and there's a, there's a sense of sort of uh, there's an admirable quality about that of, of sort of maintaining an independent sense of self preservation. Um, but it's balance. It's all moderation. You know, if you kind of just feel like, and I think it's healthy to question everything and anything, but question it thoroughly and look into it deeply, and don't find yourself stuck in an echo chamber of of just this one idea. Or this yeah. one news stream, or this one person that's telling you these things. If you if you have concerns about anything, then then by all means, kind of act upon those concerns but right. in an informed, um, critical manner. You know, do the work, dive deep yeah. into it, and then yeah. you might find your your opinion reinforced and rightfully so, or you might find that it falls apart, or you might find that you you kind of stuck in between the middle somewhere. But it gives you time to gestate those ideas and those feelings, and kind of, sort of tap into them more yourself. Kind of like link yeah. into what's going on yourself, and not letting other things dictate that. But it's it's in moderation. I think you know there's there's good understandable reasons to question any government or official body, but at the same time, it can it can be a dangerous sort of slippery path to just being falling into into a sense that uh, okay they're out to get me at every single opportunity and that I'm just going to close myself off. Um, right. And I think um, that's dangerous, okay. you know? Yeah. Let me ask you this though. Um, and now we're going to veer into some silly questions. Oh, no. Great. Relatively silly. <laughs> um, I'm somebody that I, I, I love Tex-Mex and I love Mexican food. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been exposed to any of that within Texas? <laughs> oh, of course, man. Within like the first week. <laughs> like, uh, the thing is, people people just can't wait to kind of take you to places. And it's really nice because, honestly, we don't have... I mean, I don't know what it's like. Maybe I doubt it has in the last two years. But from my prior experience, the only sort of Mexican food or Tex-Mex food or anything of that sort of little or nature is just through like a chain um, that just doesn't have any sense of authenticity to it. That's just pumped out by, by like the numbers. So being taken to places that are like family run establishments that use fresh ingredients that try all these different things. That was a wonderful adaptation. Cause it's just like, wow, I, I had maybe sampled it a little bit in some of the visits I'd made before moving permanently, but then it was just kind of like, wow, this is, this is brilliant. This is like opening up, me to to a whole not just culinary thing which is like a completely different cultural thing too but yeah that was like within the first week people were just like oh you gotta go here and i'm just like oh okay i guess yeah every, every time i have uh uh i guess we call them latino in america but every time i have any guest of of mexican descent mm-hmm. at all on my show i have to consciously like restrain myself because i'll just talk about <laughs> <laughs> it's I'm easy somebody. Done. 
I'm somebody that I love Mexican food, and I, was, <laughs> <laughs> you know, have you? So you've had a burrito, you've had oh yeah, um, you've had a taco. Mm-hmm. Have you had tongue tacos yet? No, what tongue tacos? Oh, you've got to have. Oh god. Ah, uh, see, I don't. If if that's like animal, like I'm a vegetarian, so like now, oh. I, and I have. <laughs> that's another change that I've made in the last year, which has been very interesting. Living in in Central Texas, which is obviously a big meat place, it's just <laughs> like you get maybe one option on a menu, or you can ask them to make modifications, which I'm sure they love yeah. when they take that to the back. Just like, oh, this guy wants this, but without meat. Great. Yeah. <laughs> There was a lot of, um, I used to live in the city. I used to live in Atlanta proper, um, which I don't know if you've heard of Atlanta, but it's a mm-hmm. big, oh, yeah, big yeah. place. Um, the restaurants, I don't know if they still do this, but they used to have these menus that they called the girlfriend menu. Okay. And it it was always like vegetarian or oh, like right. maybe a salad. <laughs> Yeah, that's for me. I'll ha- I'll take a girlfriend menu, please. Uh. <laughs> I mean, but it wasn't like it was like the little places, like the like the little, you know, the the mom and pops or the independent yeah. places that would have it. <laughs> <laughs> one place, one place, I'll never forget this. They had a they had a dish. They had a whole dish on there that was called "My girlfriend isn't hungry," and. And what it was, was it was like a little bit of fries. It was like one chicken finger and like two um, mozzarella sticks. Right. <laughs> well, this is funny. Um, so you've had Mexican food that's been vegetarian. I, yeah. I mean, uh, like, it, wow. It all, it also, well, it stems around mainly um, <laughs> cheese and beans. That's your cornerstones. And then, and then like veg. Yeah. But before that, I mean, as I say, I've, I've only been like a vegetarian proper for like the last year and a half. So like my first year here. Yeah. I kind of got to, to sample the, the meat aspect of it and just like the, the, the meat culture. If that's an if that's the right phrase for Texas, I feel like it is because there is like uh, obviously a big barbecue element to to the sort of state's identity and culture, but yeah, Absol- that was that was that was thrown in the mix. But um, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Uh, hmm. Well, I'm sorry you can't have a tongue taco. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it that it's good. It's delicious. <laughs> um. So I, I guess the other silly question I have uh, is, ha, have you sampled the the sports here in this country? Um, not well, a no. little bit. So I've seen okay. I've seen a couple of college basketball games. Um, because yeah. my family is is really into the to the college basketball team here. So I've been there. Um, and that was great. That was that was an experience. Um, very different to the presentation in terms of, of British sports. So I'm a big football or what you would class as soccer fan. Yeah. Um, and yeah, one of the big noticeable differences is uh, presentation. You know, uh, there isn't uh, any sort of uh, cheerleaders. There's no dancing. There's, you know, there's, there's no razzmatazz in, in mm. sort of soccer. It's just like the, the lads hit the pitch, whistle blows, you get into it. And then that's about it. But here, there's more of a production value, which I I kind of appreciate because it's it's very different and interesting. 
but I don't know how much I could deal with that regularly. I'd just be like, can we just crack on and get on with it? So, okay. I created an international incident on Twitter <laughs> by wading into the Super League discussion. Oh, okay. And okay. I did not understand. Right. I was told that I did not understand what I was talking about. Okay, sure. And <laughs> to go away. <laughs> right. And all this other stuff. So. So what's, your, what's ask, your opinion on it? Yeah, okay. Sorry, go on. Here's my opinion. And this is, I'm coming from a, a perspective as an American. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think you in Britain would call this a, a closed league system. With yes. our baseball or hockey. Right. Um, now, first of all. You can understand this because you live here. Mm-hmm. Um, my home, the town that I call my hometown, is a metropolitan area of seven million people mm-hmm. in a state of about eleven million people. Um, you could not have, like, if say you had pro rel in this country with the soccer, football, whatever, right in this country. You could not go to the county I live in and say, hey, we're going to have this team, and if we win, if we get in this league, um, you're going to be on the hook for this uh, massive stadium that we might have to vacate within two years, mm-hmm. right? Two years from today. Right. Um, you could not do that. <laughs> they, they would not. They would laugh you out of the building. Yeah. Um, I don't know how it, I don't know how they pay for their stadiums over there, but you couldn't do that here. You couldn't do it. Right. No. Um, So your opinion on the Super League, like what is it, what is it that caused an international incident? I'm I'm curious. This has been a a dear subject of late to me. What I said was that at the end of the day, these these 12, all these clubs are businesses. Mm-hmm. At the mm. end of the day, they're all businesses. Yes and no. I kind of agree with that. I kind of don't. Sorry, go on. Okay. okay. Well, okay. So my thought was, why wouldn't you want to have, like, I get the whole, like, well, I think I get the whole, like, tradition thing, the whole, mm-hmm. like, this is the league, the whole, like, you know this wee little team and this from this wee little town can can beat this right. team all that sure fine but you know at the end of the day uh how often does that happen right you see what i'm saying mhm i don't know um no i i know what you mean um so it's it is interesting it's interesting to hear um an American perspective on this because as you say like the the system for sports over here is very different you do have what would be referred to as closed leagues where no matter how badly a team does in in a league they're going to be playing in that same league the next year over in in particular with with soccer and football um if you have a really bad season you can be demoted to a lower league and that means uh, a number of things. Obviously, it's not so much a sense of shame, but it's a sense of disappointment, and it's like a run of hard luck for that club. And it can be hard for teams to come back up from that. I won't go into it, but I'll cite a team that, if anyone's interested in, can look into this uh, called Sunderland, who were once in the Premier League and were a reasonable mid-table team, but have now sort of squandered and kind of gone down and down and down. 
So that is there's a real a movie called Sunderland Till I Die. Or yeah, something like there's that. a there's a Netflix series, and if anyone's interested in this, I yeah. would highly recommend them watching that because that kind of explains it in a lot more detail and, and talks about the drama and the ramifications of, of all of this. Um, the the opposing sort of sentiment to the to the Super League was was that it was it's a sense that you should earn this position and that it's not just handed out. Unfortunately, over the last 15 plus years, there's been a lot of private equity and investment and um, corporate ownership of football teams. Uh, And that's kind of just become part of the way the culture has changed. But I think people, myself very much included, don't want to see it go further than it has. And this was one step to basically privatizing certain teams and and making it more like that. And I understand what you mean. It, it is a business in one hand, especially for those people that have put a lot of money into it. It is a business. and Anyone that puts money into something wants to see it succeed and generate more money. But the, the big sort of backlash behind it was that these are people that have swanned into a club within the last, as I say, 15 years, if not less, yeah. and taken it as their property when really, and it goes back to working class roots, these are these are teams that were for working class people, and that working class people would often play for as well. Uh, and it just feels I, like it's been taken away from that. Yeah, I think the thing that the separate thing that separates American or North American teams from that is that, um, like, so there's a baseball team in, in my city called the Atlanta Braves. Mm-hmm. Um, they were started in Boston and they were started with the idea that it was a professional team. And for a long time, well into, I would even say my dad's lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you basically had to have a second job if you were a player, unless you were really, really good. You basically had to have a second job. The difference is that you, you never had... Like, they set up the minor league system as a way to feed that major league system. Right. Right? They There wasn't any of this pyramid idea. Mm-hmm. There could have been. I'm not saying that there couldn't have been. There could have been. And it's really... And these people are dead now. This this generation is dead now. Mm-hmm. But the there was an older generation that was a little bit older than my dad's generation that remembered like a a league that doesn't exist anymore that had a parallel setup in terms of like pay right yeah to the major league setup and there was a while there where they you could actually make a pretty decent living as a ball player in that in that little so-called minor league Mm -hmm. um but that that doesn't exist anymore um and what i was amazed at researching it because I'd created this international incident <laughs> was how recently it was that these companies had come in and bought these teams. Yeah. I, I had no idea that, Oh, well that was in, that was 15 years, 20 years ago or whatever, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. It, it is, it is pretty recent and they've been through a, a number of different owners, different teams. I, I say 15 cause I can't remember exactly, but it all kind of started when a, a, a uh, multi-millionaire if not billionaire called Roman Abramovich bought 
a London-based team called Chelsea, and that kind of opened the floodgates to more of this. And mm. uh, what's been really interesting is since the whole Super League thing collapsed, is uh, the reason it collapsed essentially the reason these the, the what I referred to as the Big Six retracted their decision to to join this sort of closed off privatized league uh, was due to just fans just taking to the streets and and letting their voices be heard that they will not have yeah. their club be be snatched away from it, them. Right. And that's, I mean, that rhetoric right there, like your club snatched away from you. I mean, that's, it's in the same building, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you could still go. <laughs> well, you, you can and you can't because another issue that has kind of cropped up with this is increasing ticket prices is ridiculous amounts of money yeah. being asked for certain tickets and tickets being cordoned off for um, uh, investors and relations to investors. So basically becoming more privatized audiences. So I can't remember the exact game or the statistics, like the percentage cut, but it was like instead of having 100% availability for fans, actual fans, your average person on the street working a regular job fan buying tickets to a game there would be like say 20 25% of that seat capacity sectioned off to people that could uh purchase them at a higher price and it yeah. it, it just felt like that was becoming more so it was the, the super league was a big catalyst for it but it's it's been a problem that's been building for a while yeah i think in this country um you've started to see that in the last, I, I would say, twenty years, that mm-hmm. you you have some what you would call regular seats. I mean, you always had, not always, but right. for years and years, you had your your box seats that were that was for corporate types or whatever. Sure. But but you have now you have um, like outfield tickets to the Braves now. I mean, yeah, you have your seven dollar tickets and your twelve dollar tickets and all that. But you can easily spend um, hundreds. I mean, like I mean, you watch the game now. You'll see like the the uh, the seats by the home plate. A lot of times they're empty, even though they're sold out. Mm-hmm. And that's because you can't buy those. Like you can't right. walk up to anywhere or go on any phone or anything and just buy those seats. You can't do it. And <laughs> it's just kind of like weird, but. I guess in America we we either have bigger issues or I don't know, like we're used to it. I suppose I think it's it's maybe that I think you've you've established a system, and it it seems like it would be maybe too much of an upheaval to change it. I am surprised that you don't do the pyramid scheme in in sports here because it kind of feels like it really kind of ties into what has been you know banded about as the American dream, the idea that if you work hard enough at something and you've got the right attitude and heart. You, you can, as a small club, go up the leagues. And it's always kind of surprised me that it's never been sort of integrated into to the sports scene. Well, I think I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is a very good reason. And that is, as we said, our country is so new. Mm-hmm. Like, my city, I've been studying my hometown for, let's see, 98 to now, 23 years. Um, my city today has about seven and a half million people in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 1950s, they got a million people. Right. So you can't have, we're so new, 
that you wouldn't have had, like that that team to even go up the pyramid. Number right. one, got you. Yeah. Uh, number two. Um. The other thing is like we, you kind of have the pyramid scheme like with uh, college football or college basketball, mm-hmm. but even then, I mean that gets into. Um, I'm not a college football fan, but there's been some whisperings, rumblings, whatever, that some of these players are getting paid. Like Alabama, the University of Alabama is a business, mm-hmm. football-wise, right? That's yeah. a business. The, the University of Texas, football-wise, is a business. Absolutely. Right? Like, that's not, you know, like, that's not like your college. Oh, that's no, something. and that's that's something else that kind of threw me as a big surprise is just just how much is thrown into to college sports here. Because in the UK, yeah. college sports is like something your mum and your dad and your sister might attend. You know. <laughs> well, that's um, how it is. I mean, that's how it is here. Like with the minor, like with the not minor, but like the the local team, like the local colleges or. The, mm-hmm. But it's just it's it's huge, like that. Like, yeah. You know, seeing stadiums for for college teams and arenas and complexes for, oh. for college teams was mind blowing. I was like, this is this is for a, a university. It's like wow. Yeah. Okay. But then it, like, it it boils down to what you're saying. It's it's a business ultimately. Yeah, yeah. Like the University of Georgia has a bigger, uh, their stadium is bigger than the stadium the Atlanta Falcons play in. Yeah. <laughs> for for example, and I mean there again you have the same. Like you were talking about, like a lot of the, fa- I mean, a lot of the Falcons people in the Falcons stadium don't actually pay for their tickets. Mm-hmm. Like they're given their ticket or whatever from their job or whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So have you seen the MLS? <laughs> no, uh, I, no, no, I actually no. haven't yet. Um, it's it's something I will check out at some point. I've just kind of been holding off, just um, I don't know, just in case I'm just hit by an overwhelming sense of disappointment. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not Chelsea or Man United, but it's right. also not. No, it's this is the thing. It's, it has come on leaps and bounds. It's it's been a program that has been very much advanced and. And has kind of evolved from what I understand. So it's evolved very quickly. Yeah. It's evolved very rapidly. Uh, 20, okay. What year is this? 12 years ago, it was a laughing stock, mm-hmm. even in this home, even in, in our country. Like nobody cared. Mm-hmm. And now in Atlanta, I would say in the city proper, it's bigger than than the Falcons. Mm. I I would say I do I do see a rise of it. I mean, just in the short time I've been here, you know, I see goalposts, like um, soccer goalposts and stuff in in a lot of parks and stuff. And obviously, you know, the the women's Olympic team and the the, the men's uh, international team had a decent run in in one of the World Cups a few few yeah. number of years back now. So obviously, you know, if if there's a sense of success in there then it's going to kind of spur other people to to want to try the hand at it and kind of get more interested in it. It'll be interesting to see what it'll be like in 10 years if that evolve evolving stage keeps going, if that progression keeps on. Or if I think point, it will. Yeah. I think it'll 
maybe maybe I'm biased because I live where I live, but mm-hmm. I mean, I live in the. I mean, who knew this town was a soccer hotbed? <laughs> I mean, I had there were whisperings about it. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, literally, okay. Like I think about it. Everybody I know that was my age. Every guy that I know that was my age, every male of the species that I know that was my age, practically was issued a girlfriend that that played that played soccer, mm. right? At least in this town, right? Um, and it's amazing to think back how many friend how many friends I had that were guys who had a girlfriend that played soccer. Mm-hmm. It's practically all of them. <laughs> Seriously. And you think about, well, all those girls ended up liking soccer, right? Mm-hmm. And it's only natural that you like, that you grow to like what the person you're living with likes. Right. You're you, exposed you, to it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, right? Exactly. That's it. I think it, it boils down to that exposure, you know. And I think in the last 10 years, as you say, there's been more of it. So it makes sense that there's been more of a, not so much a passive uh, looking at it, but more an active involvement yeah. in it. And plus, in this town, like the, they try to play the more South American style. Oh, a bit, is, of, bit of flair, bit of fanciness. Yeah, the South. Ama- I, I gotta say, I like the South American style better than the European style. Oh well, yeah, it's it's like apples and oranges. I mean, there's there's pros and cons to to both. Yeah. But yeah, I can understand definitely if you're looking at it from a casual standpoint. Yeah, I can see yeah. there's definitely more attraction. Oh yeah, it's much faster, more run and gun, more. Mm-hmm. It's like a track meet. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, is there any like European? Is there any English food you like miss, or whatever? Um, no, not really. Because to be honest, like Britain's not exactly known really for its cuisine. Obviously, we kind of get lumped in as as you know, fish and chips. That's a traditional thing. Um, but in terms of cuisine, we have little bits and pieces, you know. But we're not exactly renowned for for food and stuff. To be fair, we tend to just basically nick ideas from other countries and, and adopt them, you know. Um, so uh, um, I can't really say off the top of my head if there's anything in particular that I miss food-wise, you know. Um, probably not. Not until if it was put out in front of me or if someone offered me something and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I haven't had that in ages. Black pudding. Oh, no. <laughs> Even when I was an ardent meat eater, I wouldn't go anywhere near that. Uh, <laughs> Too much What is me. that? What does that taste like? I mean, oh, who just... knows? Uh, I, I have no idea, and, and I never want to find out. Just looking at it, it I'm like, just, it, you know, as an American, just looking at it, I'm, I'm looking at this, and I'm like, that's either terrible or amazing. <laughs> and the <laughs> argument for it line. being, the argument for it being amazing is that it's, it's hundreds of years old. Mm-hmm. So, okay. <laughs> there must be something good in there for people to keep coming back to it. Yeah. <laughs> what that is, I have no idea, but obviously it's uh it's doing something for somebody. You know. Well don't look at me, I put chocolate peanut butter on pumpernickel, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting combination. I don't know how quickly I'm gonna be willing to try that, but alright. Well it started out as like I'm hungry, we only the only bread we have is pumpernickel. 
And then I was like, oh, where has this been? Yeah. <laughs> That's a question. If you're asking yourself that, you maybe shouldn't be thinking of eating it. <laughs> like, this is amazing. Like, where this combination of pumpernickel and chocolate oh, peanut butter. Oh, you mean where has this been all my life? I thought you meant like, where has this been? As in, I've just found this. I have no idea how it got here. Where has this been? <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, you should definitely not be eating anything if you're asking that version of the question. No, but I was like, this is so good. Why don't people sell this? This is so good. <laughs> well, there you go. You found you found an untapped market. <laughs> Get in before someone else discovers it by accident. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's let's try to veer more. I guess serious. Um, okay. <laughs> what do you think? The where do you see the country moving? Because you're an outsider. Oh. You're, you're sort of an outsider. Um. Yeah, that's a really tough question. I think um, for anybody to answer, if you've been here uh, two years, if you've been here all your life, that's a difficult one. I mean, it, it is if if you're open to to certain things. And and again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about being more receptive. I feel like to move forward, to make any sense of progress, um, in in general, you know, regardless of of what has come before, what state you're in, you need to be more receptive and open. To, to move forward and make progress but it depends you know we're, we're in a very strange flux at the minute you know in terms of going from <clears throat> one one political stance over the last four years to a very different one with a very different fan mm-hmm. base. I don't know what fan base makes it sound like he's a bloody pop star he's a politician uh fellowship <laughs> um yeah it's it's a very strange uh, flux and you know uh, I personally have a bit more faith than I did at the start of the year. In January, I won't lie, Ben, I was kind of terrified. Uh, I wasn't surprised by what happened on January 6th, but I was shocked. Um, and yeah. it was shocking to see so much active vitriol. You know, uh, we'd, we'd seen, obviously, unpleasantness years beforehand. We'd seen unrest years beforehand. But to see it spill out in such uh, such a feverish fashion was was genuinely terrifying, and it did really make me uh, wonder what the hell is happening. But you posed a really good question, and I think it's one that collectively uh, the country, both on on either side of the political divide and on terms of the divide between politicians as a whole, no matter what their alignment and people as well need to ask and it's what is this country what is america and i feel like that's a question that needs a lot of time and consideration before you can can move forward because yeah i mean i i think about that a lot yeah actually i i think about that a whole lot Mm -hmm. i mean like for example i mean england where you're from Mm -hmm. i mean your people probably showed up I mean, if you have any immigrant ancestors or whatever, they they were probably Vikings or they were probably Roman or they're probably whatever, mm-hmm. you know. And well, we are, there. and, and this, is, this is something that a lot of British people, well, I say a lot of people, there's a certain contingency of British people that just don't understand this or maybe do but don't want to acknowledge it, and that's there is no such thing really as a native Britain. We are a collection of immigrants. We're a collection of uh, uh, Anglo-Saxons, Welsh Celts, and, and other mm-hmm. European uh, immigrants that have formed the basis um and it's just opened up and spread out furthermore and yeah. you know a, a lot of people as i say 
uh, don't really either understand that or, or want to actually admit it. Well, but that's that's what I mean. Like, like I I take the other side of that. Like, they've just always been there. Like, you could have somebody hmm. like okay. I for example, in my life, I have an aunt who has all her folks, her her ancestors. As long as there's been white people in this part of Atlanta and this where Atlanta is today, have basically always been here, mm-hmm. right? Now that's only been a couple hundred years, or at most, yeah, you know, hundred and sixty, hundred and seventy years, whatever. But you look at you, where you you could have an ancestor that's lived in the same town for a thousand right. years, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> You know, like I know a guy who he his house was older than he said my house is my house in Scotland is older than your country. <laughs> I'm like, oh. and it's true. There's, there's buildings in my hometown which are, which are older than you know large parts of the country. Um, I, I, again, it goes to to scale and and perspective and yeah. and just time. So bigger time, less distance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah story of my life i wonder if um i mean what would be fascinating is like nowadays like in england like in britain Mm -hmm. you could have somebody you could have a person or you probably do that this person's ancestors one of them would have been a republican and one of them would have been a what do you call the cavalier are you, are you are you in terms of well, political the, alignment? The or? English Civil War. Oh well, we 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 had many of those, Ben, throughout the well, years. Picking picking one, the one you're thinking of, I'm thinking though, is the War of the Roses. That was Lancashire against Yorkshire. No, it was the one. Um, it's literally called the English Civil War. The Cromwell. Oh. Rainy. Um. Yeah, I, I can't remember off the top of my head now. But it was the Cavaliers and the Roundheads. But you could literally have somebody to, alive today. Mm-hmm. That these people, like this group was a Cavalier and this group was a Roundhead. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, you know? where where I'm from, it was the border of England. The, the sort of last part of Northern England before you crossed over into Scotland. So wow. that has got its own really, really deep dense story detailed history of conflict and and just like numerous do you have any do you have any reavers in your family tree do you know probably yeah we probably (laughs) do at some point why don't you explain to the good people of the internet what a reaver was Uh, (laughs) at least as you um, understand it uh where do you they were people that and my under my silly American understanding <laughs> is they were people that would go over the border and they would raid mm-hmm. um, farms or cows or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's my silly, stupid understanding. I mean, it's it's not a million miles off. Essentially, because as I was saying, I, like I was, I'm from the the border of of England, so it was like hotly contested. Like there are certain parts of of the the U.S. which have kind of had like contestant parties saying this belongs to us no it belongs to us 
no, it's part of ours, no, it's, it's ours. That was very much a, a staple for a long time between Scotland and England, and, and it was just a long-standing point of contention. And so, yeah, Reavers essentially were people that would would try and, and pillage, essentially, and take what they believed was rightfully theirs, uh, whether that was due to sort of royal connections or if it was due to just uh, a historical understanding that the, the, the contours of our land end here, so that involves this area and that's ours. And so, yeah, you'd have constant skirmishes and, and, and back and forths between uh, people that believed that this land was, was theirs. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because there probably are a number of bloodlines which have both sides of, of those conflicts <laughs> within their own family. Do you know about... Um... Do you know if you have any pre-existing um, American relatives, however distant? Yeah, I do, because we did, um, I think it was it was either for my birthday or for Christmas, I can't remember which one, but my wife did a 23andMe DNA thing, and uh-huh. I have a, a lot of third to fourth cousins which have made it over here. Um, and yeah, yeah so, so there's a lot of sort of migration and and likewise my wife did one for herself and she has a lot of sort of ancestral crossover with with england particularly towards the south in a place called that Corner. is crazy isn't it hmm? that is that's that's bonkers yeah <laughs> <laughs> that is bonkers um that's like uh there's a guest that i had um and her name there's the Americanization of her name, mm-hmm. right? Her last name. There's a whole lot of those people. Mm. Like, there's a whole lot of those people. The Americanization of her name, right? There's only one of her, <laughs> right? Right. But there's a whole lot of the Americanization of her name. Mm-hmm. Like thousands and thousands. So, but it's crazy. Um Crazy, crazy. So how big of a town would you say you were from in northern England? Um, it's a reasonably mid-sized city. It's not particularly big. Um, Population-wise, probably uh, 100,000, maybe. It's a while since I last looked at the census, but it'd be about that. Yeah. And is the population scale kind of similar to where you are in Texas, or it's a little, it's it's a little bit more. In fact, maybe about double. Um, but yeah. again, that is kind of spread out as well due to um, not typography, the other one. Topography. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> it's funny because when you were first saying that, I thought, "Oh, that's how they say topography in Britain." No, <laughs> no, I just made a ridiculous mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so were you a in Manchester were you a red or a blue? Oh for oh I'm a Liverpool supporter so I I oh, I, yeah. dis, I despise so, both of those teams just naturally Everton. inherently. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the history history there. I'm I'm somewhat aware of it but the like one was more catholic than the other one or something like that. Um I don't know if that stems between Manchester United and Manchester City, but yeah, that's definitely uh, in Liverpool. There are two teams. So Liverpool um, are, are the team that play in red, Everton are the team that play in blue. 
And I actually didn't know this until recently, but yeah, there was a religious split between them. And I believe it is Liverpool that is the the Catholic associated team, although that's long gone. There's no religious um, affiliations uh, to either club really anymore. Yeah. But Liverpool were considered the Catholic team. Everton were considered the, the Protestant team. And I imagine that probably stems from, because Liverpool itself is is a port city and it was a, a, a big um, sort of place for people bringing in goods, especially from Ireland. It was like a, a cross-channel connection point. Uh, so presumably that's kind of where that stems from. Yeah. Cotton. I think there was a lot of cotton mm. brought into Liverpool from America. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah. yeah, as I said, it was kind of like a good plug for for a lot of a lot of yeah. uh, in, input. Yeah, yeah. So, do you want to talk about before I let you go? Do you want to talk about the actual mechanics of coming over here or not? Yeah, you can do. Um, it's it's it doesn't. I don't know how interesting it'll be in terms of content for you, but sure, I can talk to you well, about that. Here's the here's the dirty little secret about my podcast. Uh-huh. Right. My pot. I consider my podcast an oral history, mm-hmm. cleverly disguised as a podcast. <laughs> right, right, cleverly disguised. So really, <laughs> like the people that are interested in that are not born yet. <laughs> okay, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Like, because what if something happens and suddenly, like, I don't know. I got you. I, always, I had a professor where I went to college who was an oral historian, you know? Mm-hmm. And he had hundreds and hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of oral interviews from all walks of life. And it's, you never know what's going to be interesting later. Oh, absolutely. And you don't know what the shape <laughs> of, of society is going to be like. I mean, so right. basically what we're doing here is documenting my immigration process for the future generation that are having to live underneath the rule of AI and barter with cryptocurrency. Well, either <laughs> that or something happens and there aren't, there's no more whatever. I mean, because, you know, nation states are a, a social construct mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, yeah. But yeah, okay. So in terms of, of, of that, for 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 few you future generations, when you when you're pulling this out of the the library back in back in 2019, 18, I lose track of what year we're in now. No, 2018, uh, yeah. we officially filed probably the year before. So basically, the, the the process as streamlined as possible is that my fiance at the time then had to basically do the initial filing to say, look, here's this strange English fellow that I'd like to marry. Um, uh, here's our initial application. They would read it over and then they would start up like a network with the immigration services over in Britain. And then they would get the request. The US side would approve it, send it over. Then the UK would start working on their end. And then I'd have to start filling in like a litany of paperwork. I'd have to get an, a copy of my non-existent criminal record uh, send it to them um, and then go through a series of other applications and uh, including uh, I had to go to a, a medical and, and have like a medical facility and have a medical exam done and I had to go for an interview and there was two interviews actually and then you, it's just a long waiting game essentially it's paperwork it's it's uh, previous examinations 
of, of like as I say, non-existent criminal record for me, and and then just just a, like a long parade of waiting between them connecting with each other. So the UK would gather their info for me, then they'd send it over and be like, this is all the stuff we've got on this resident or this citizen that wants to move over there, uh, take a look, and then they just it would go that way. And then eventually I get issued once I pass that. And the whole thing is about a year and change, a year and a half. And then I get issued a fiancé visa, which means I'm allowed to be in the country. Some people may know this because I think they did a TV show called um, 90 Day Fiancé. Someone once asked me about that and, and asked if I'd been on the show, which was weird because I'm like, <laughs> why would I just... I mean, yes, I am technically a 90-day fiancé, but that doesn't qualify me to be on a TV show. Anyway. I mean, so the, the fiancé visa is 90 days. Is what Essentially, yeah. So you enter the country, you've got 90 days to get married, and then you send off what's called uh, an adjustment of status. It's basically just you show them a copy of your marriage certificate and what have you, and uh, they say, like, oh, yeah, okay. So you got yeah. married, and then and then after that, it's just as I said, you, you get into another holding pattern before they accept that fully, and then you can start getting um, a license for for work and stuff, and then you can you can do yeah. other things as well, like actually get a full term driving license and stuff. So yeah, it's yeah. it's a lot of paperwork, a lot of waiting around. <laughs> essentially, so right. So I'm going to ask a silly question that I Go think I know the answer to, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I know the answer to this, but it occurs to me that there's some somebody in the future would be like, why didn't you ask him that, you doofus? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so you had to do this with the U.S. You did not have to do this with Texas. No, right? this is okay. this is from, from a, a, a national... Yeah. Uh, body of the government, yeah. I, I, I thought I knew that. Uh, I was ninety nine percent sure that I knew that, but mm-hmm. yeah, you never know. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it's it's a, it's a good question because you don't know if it is localized or if it is if it's a sort of collaboration. If you work through both of them, yeah. and I'm sure they probably did. You know, I'm sure they probably, you know, once you kind of let them know where your future intended residence will be, they'll kind of work to some degree with them. On what level, I don't know, because obviously they're not going to show me what they're doing behind the scenes. I'm not privy to, to their sort of paperwork. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't want to be because like, my paperwork enough is, is boring. I mean, you do get asked some very interesting questions when you do apply. Yeah, so like I would imagine... And I mean, I understand it. It is all for like obviously national safety, but it's um, very yeah. strange, bizarre questions. Uh, you know, uh, having to reaffirm that I've never been actually involved in genocide or the trafficking of people, stuff like that. You know, yeah. things that you never thought you'd ever have to answer, but here you do are. They, do they still ask you if you're a, if you were a communist? I know they used to do that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they, they don't do just that. single. They don't single it out as that, but it's like that with a bunch of other, um, sort of off-branch political okay. ideas and beliefs. So it's communist, socialist. Like, do you have ties with communists? You know. I'm pretty sure they do. I don't want to say that for definite, because um, it's been a while. But I do remember yeah. them kind of probing into, um, 
like certain, just basically getting you to say that you haven't had affiliations with yeah. certain certain parties. But they also get very specific as well. Like they mention certain groups, um, like right. like African Death Squads and stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. Um. So Mal. Hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to... Because we've been at this almost two hours. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. It's just flown by. Um, No, not really. You know, just other than, than you know... What's the name of your podcast? Let's, let's, let's sure. plug your podcast. Okay, so my name... Uh, my name. <laughs> it's a great start to a plug. Uh, the name of my podcast is Dimed Out. And we are just about to start our third season and yeah it's hard to kind of nail down exactly what it is the way that i describe it now is that it's like an anthropological journey as i said before one thing i've learned from doing it and one thing that i really really like about it is is the openness and receptiveness to it it's kind of got like a fluid identity in terms of what it covers and what subjects it looks at uh so it goes from everything from alternative lifestyles like wicca and off the grid living to uh, astrology, to transhumanism, to, as I said before, we spoke to a former QAnon follower, um, and we're starting off the third season by talking to a guy who is an animal handler and has done a show of his own talking to, I think you've had him, Jeremy Carberry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah. yeah, we talked to Jeremy for the first, and like, that's a fascinating fella. No, he is. He's, he's a very interesting dude. Yeah. Um. One thing I wish I'd have gotten more into was his work history before he got into that. Mm-hmm. Um, that he was into the the music business and yeah, he's so. a, he's an audio engineer yeah, by yeah, trade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but he's yeah. an interesting dude. But we cover a lot of different things, and it's it, I, I refer to it as a double edged sword because obviously we don't have a core demographic that comes back week after week. Uh, as somebody might do for like a, a podcast based on a TV series. But I think kind of similar to what you're doing here is it opens itself up and, and it has a lot more freedom to talk about countless things, you know, and explore different yeah. things. It's that, you know, just engaging in conversation is a wonderful realisation or reminder of how fascinating and diverse people can be, and, you know. And when, as an adult, are you going to sit and talk to somebody for nearly two hours that you don't know like exactly we're not friends we don't work together like when are you gonna do this exactly it's it's a beautiful thing it opens up so many opportunities you wouldn't have otherwise yeah yeah um well mal um it's been lovely um yeah just hang on the line with me while i download this and um sure all right Bye, everybody.